0: Good evening, I'm Harvey Perlman, Chancellor of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. It's my distinct pleasure to welcome you on this cold and snowy evening to the Ian e. Thompson Forum on World Issues. This forum, founded by and named in honor of Ian e. Jack Thompson, is designed to engage Nebraska students and Nebraskans in issues affecting the world around us. We are deeply grateful to the Cooper Foundation for their continuing support of this series. We also thank the LEAD Center for for its generous support, Nebraska Educational Telecommunications, Cable Channel 21, KRNU Radio, KLIN Radio, University Bookstore, the Nebraska Humanities Council, and St. Paul United Methodist Church. St. Paul's hosts follow-up discussions at the church located at 12th and M Street the Thursday after each lecture. At the conclusion of tonight's lecture, you will have the opportunity to ask questions of our speaker. Please write down your questions on the cards provided and pass them to the ushers. I would like to thank the Reverend Stephen Griffith, minister to the community at St. Paul's United Methodist Church, Lincoln, who led the pre-talk earlier this evening, and thank in advance the Reverend Gerald Thompson, rector at St. Mark's on the campus Episcopal Church, who will moderate our question and answer session following the lecture this evening. Before we introduce our speaker of this evening, I'd like to remind you of our next Thompson Forum on Tuesday, April 22, 2008. The Forum was originally scheduled with William Riley, founding partner of Aqua International Partners on Corporate Environmentalism, Bridging the Communications Gap. Due to some unforeseen engagements, Mr. Riley has asked his colleague Bruce Babbitt to replace him at our Forum. Mr. Babbitt is the former Attorney General, former Governor of Arizona, and served as Secretary of Interior throughout the two terms of the Clinton administration. He is the author of books about Western lands and resources, has played a leadership role in water disputes and allocations in the Everglades. In 2002, tonight's speaker, Richard Sizick, had a conversion experience. A long-term committed evangelical Christian He was attending a conference in Oxford where he said, Sir John Houghton, an evangelical scientist, was presenting evidence of shrinking ice caps, temperatures tracked for millennia through ice core data, increasing hurricane intensity, drought patterns, and so on. I realized all at once with sudden awe that climate change is a phenomenon of truly biblical proportions. That experience has propelled Reverend Seizek Vice President for Governmental Affairs of the National Association of Evangelicals, to engage in a sort of holy war to convince Christians to see the earth as God's gift and recognize it as their duty to care for it. Now known as the Green Evangelist, Reverend Sizek's duties for the National Association of Evangelicals include setting the organizational's policy direction on issues before Congress, the White House, and the Supreme Court as well as serving as a national spokesman on issues of concern to evangelicals. A conservative, both politically and religiously, Reverend Sizek is on a mission to convert tens of millions of Americans to the cause of conservation, using a right to life framework and spreading the doctrine of creation care to evangelical Christians. Thanks to his leadership, the association released a manifesto urging its members to adopt eco-friendly living habits and exhorting the government to lighten Americans' environmental footprint. The organization also circulated a charter calling on its member network and top-level Beltway allies to fight global warming. Educated in political science and public affairs, Reverend Sizek graduated with a B.A. in political science from Whitmore College, earned an M.A. in public affairs from George Washington University, and earned a Master of Divinity from Denver Seminary. He received an honorary doctorate of ministry in Christian leadership from the Methodist Episcopal Church. Reverend Sizick was ordained by the Evangelical Presbyterian Church in 1992, and in addition to his work for the association, maintains an active preaching and speaking schedule. The title of his lecture this evening is, For God's Sake, and he can tell us what, uh, how you accent that. Please welcome the Reverend Richard Sizick.
1: Thank you, Chancellor Perlman. I'm so grateful to be here. I can even see some of you out there. Thank you for coming out. Is it a bit ironic to be talking about global warming on a night in a snowstorm in Nebraska? (laughs) But I'm very grateful to you for coming out and for engaging uh, with me and with your fellow citizens about what I would say to you is probably one of the most cosmological issues that uh, our generation or any generation has ever faced in the history of mankind. By that, uh, I mean to say that it raises questions about who we are as people and who we are as a nation and a world and even a globe. And so thank you for coming out tonight. I wanna begin this evening uh, not just by thanking my hosts uh, for being here at this incredible university and for all those people I've met this week. Thank you for your hospitality. Thank you for caring, uh, particularly in coming out tonight. I'm very grateful to you. I would like to begin this evening with a movie, and it's a short one, we don't have a long time tonight, but I think it's worth watching because it provides a bit of an introduction, my friends, into what this issue is all about. It may interest you to know that it comes from a larger movie called The Great Warming. In this case, it's called What If? And it was not done by the Christian community, but it was done by people who believe That people of faith generally, of all faiths, are the key, the answer to how we address these questions. These great cosmological questions which we're going to entertain tonight. So, uh, it comes by way of Stonehaven Productions in Canada, and it's called What If. So, thank you.
2: I'm Keanu Reeves.
3: And I'm Alanis Morissette. What if there was a planet so perfectly balanced that millions of species thrived in realms of water, land, and air?
4: What if a single species became so powerful that it began to change the very nature of the planet itself?
3: It is happening now, and only one species has the power to stop it.
2: Ours. (laughs) Ours.
3: of the 21st century are coming of age in a remarkable time. Just as their great-grandparents endured the Great Depression, they will live in the time of the Great Warming, and their lives will never be the same. Over 20 years ago, scientists began raising the alarm. Our atmosphere's delicate interplay of temperature and moisture was shifting out of balance. But this was more than heat waves and storms. The cycles and systems that define our global climate were changing faster than ever before. For the past 5,000 years, Earth's climate has been unusually placid, enabling us to spread across six continents and making us believe that we can survive in almost any environment. Our habitat has been stable just long enough for us to learn how to disrupt it through agriculture, the domestication of animals for food and labor <laughs> and eventually the age of the machine. Fire.
1: Fire
2: Raise up smokestack. You'll call you to town. For the past three hundred
3: years signature of progress has been the smokestack. The stored solar energy of a billion summers, harnessed for horsepower and spewed into a darkening sky.
2: Earth's temperature is rising at the fastest rate in recorded history. At the same time, the CO2 in our atmosphere is higher than it has been in 420,000 years and it's still climate.
5: Climate change is like, like cancer. If, if we wait until we're sure we've got it, it may be too late to do anything about it.
0: Prudence would say, for God's sake, stop putting CO2 in the air as rapidly as possible.
4: The vast majority of the world's scientists know that it's happening and understand the science. The basic science, after all, is very old science. It's been known for 200 years that the greenhouse effect works that we are warm as we are at the moment because of greenhouse gases. If you put up those gases, the earth gets warmer. There is no doubt about that from a physics point of view, from a basic science point of view. And no scientist who knows anything will dispute that.
1: Climate change is real and human-induced, number one. Number two, it calls for action soon. And we're saying action based upon a biblical view of the world as it's God's world.
3: In the past few years, a number of senior evangelicals like Richard Sizek have grown increasingly concerned about the physical and moral implications of global warming.
1: And to destroy, if you will, to deplete our resources, to harm this world
2: by environmental degradation
1: is an offense against God.
2: Climate change is already affecting people all around the world. Global warming will be harmful for many Americans, but its most deadly effects will be felt by the 3 billion people in the developing countries who live on less than $2 a day with virtually no resources to adapt.
1: And so that's why it's so important for us to get out there as evangelical leaders and talk and say, this is a serious problem that's going to impact God's children, people God loves, people Jesus died to save in Africa, people that we're concerned about spreading the gospel to.
4: It's going to hurt them. As a Christian, I'm clearly very uh, concerned that we'd look after the earth and are good stewards of the earth, as we were told in Genesis to be, right at the beginning of the Bible, but the theme runs right through the Bible, right through into the New Testament, and Jesus had parables about stewards, stewardship. I'm going away, said he, but you've got to look after it, and you've got to look after the people in it.
3: Far from the megachurches of Colorado, California, and the South is someone who may be just what the doctor ordered. In fact, Matthew Sleeth is a doctor.
6: I was an emergency room physician and had been for a decade and a half and I began to notice uh, the number of uh, patients who had diseases that were environmentally related. Um, When I was a child, no one had asthma. Today, many, many people have asthma. Um, when I started medicine, uh, the the textbooks said about 1 in 19 women would get breast cancer. Now it's around 1 in 10. And I began to feel like I was straightening deck chairs on the Titanic and that if I really cared about health, I was going to have to um, think a little bit more globally. And um, uh, I also felt the calling from God to... Um, to expand my mission.
3: Two years ago the Sleece made some dramatic changes. He quit his job and moved the family to a much smaller community. Again he began studying both the faith and the science he'd grown up with.
6: Science is certainly a part of uh, a vital part of, of my thinking. Faith comes in when I say what should I do about it personally? What do I owe the future and how, how can I be a part of the right decisions now?
3: In his new role as a religious educator, Matthew's first audiences have ranged from church and college groups Excuse to kids from the local community.
6: How long the glaciers?
3: Don't, don't the tree huggers put. Nature above God. Well, I've heard a lot of Christians who have said that the end of the world is coming anyways, so it shouldn't really matter. Like what we warmer, do. A warmer earth wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing for the human race, but that the speed of it warming up is indicating
6: another problem. How do we know who to trust? How do we know who to believe? So let's think of that from totally from the terms of Christianity. What can I do?
3: What can my family do? And as a church, what can we do to help out and reduce global warming?
6: An example I frequently give is that um, the, if every household in the United States changed five light bulbs to compact fluorescence, we could take 21 coal-powered plants offline tomorrow, and that would be the same as taking eight million cars off the road, one trillion fewer pounds of greenhouse gases, and thousands fewer deaths. So we could save lives tomorrow just by changing light bulbs.
4: Millions upon millions of ordinary people do care, especially the young. Alongside the great warming, they are going to change the world.
3: We need to identify what the new vision is, what the alternatives to our current destructive lifestyles are. And I'm particularly interested in asking young people this question. What do you want for the future? because this is a big challenge, and we have to be innovative, inventive, and really tackle this problem.
2: What makes today's climate change unique in human history is more than just its science, which has been proven, and far more than its heat and its hurricanes. The potential of climate change to alter and degrade life on our planet presents us with profound moral choices in the way we lead our lives. And it challenges us to create a truly sustainable future on God's earth.
1: matter and I would like to uh, remind you of the story of the survey done of young children and they were asked uh, about politics and they explained history this way they said after all the Egyptians drowned in the desert Moses went up to Mount Sinai to get the ten amendments but before he died but he died before he reached Canada and when Mary heard that she was with child, she sang the Magna Carta. And because I am inclined to speak quite frankly at times, and sometimes too candidly, I have to always say the following prayer, so you'll excuse me if you're not so inclined. If you are, join me. I would say, um, may the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth be pleasing in thy sight, O Lord, my God, and my Redeemer. Amen. My favorite story is... One I told with rabbis and with ayatollahs from Iran and with others, Buddhists, and they all get it. But it's the story of the American evangelical who is riding in his Jeep Cherokee and he slams on his brakes and he walks over to the shepherd who is quietly tending his flock. And he says to the shepherd, he says, if I can tell you how many sheep you have, can I have one? And the shepherd is totally dumbstruck. And he doesn't know what to say, so he says, of course. The American goes back, you can insert your own name, your own religious community, goes back into his Jeep Cherokee, he gets on his laptop, he goes to GPS, I call this God's positioning satellite, and at the moment he has a ream of paper. And he walks over to the shepherd and he says, sir, he says, you have 1,638 sheep. And the shepherd says, That's amazing. How did you know? Go pick one out. The American has then put the sheep in his truck. He's driving away when the shepherd walks up to him, knocks on his window, stops him, and he says, He says, Sir, he says, just a moment, he says, if I can tell you what you do for a living, can I have my sheep back? And the American says, Yes. Whereupon the shepherd said, he said, It's simple, you are a consultant. And the American says, "Well, how did you know?" And the shepherd said, "Oh, he says, well, first of all, he said you came into my world you don't know anything about. You answered questions I've not asked. Leave out charged me a lot of money for it. And lastly, he said, you don't know Diddley Scott. He said you took my sheepdog. <laughs> you took my sheepdog. Uh, I would suggest to you tonight that." Uh, A lot of people in the religious community, and we as Americans, are suffering a loss of reputation around the world. And I think I would like to talk to you not just about climate change, I want to talk to you in the few moments I have about, one, transformation versus transactional politics. I want to talk to you about the broadening of the agenda to include issues from the religious community that includes climate change. I want to address as all what I believe is the most important chasm that we can begin to bridge together. That is the relationship between religion and science. And lastly, I want to say that uh, this issue, more than any other, poses the potential for bringing people together in a time when we are polarized beyond dimension. And in fact, so polarized on this issue that a friend of mine who's a columnist by the name of Cal Thomas, he's a conservative, you may know him, wrote a column about me saying that Size EQC has taken on an issue about which Christians have no need to address. And he said the reason for that, and I'm quoting him now, and he is a friend of mine, so I hope he won't mind, he said... There is nothing we can or will do to change this world prior to the return of the one to whom we owe absolute allegiance, namely Jesus. He says, there's nothing we can or will or should do to change this world. And so I confronted my friend, Cal, and I called him up and I said, Cal, how can you say this? Uh, And he said, my answer, my friend, and we have sat in the same pew, in the same Presbyterian church for many, many years, he said... It's because we have one task, and that is to go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I said, so that's it, Cal. The reason you don't want me talking about this issue, as do others, is because it's beyond our measure, beyond our calling, our vision. And he said, that's right. And I said, Cal, what does the very next verse read? He said, I don't know. I don't know. I said, I will tell you. The next verse reads, teaching them, these disciples, to obey all that I have commanded you. And I said, cow, did you know that? He said, I didn't. And I said, and what is that commandment to do? Teaching them all that I've commanded. uh, And what are those things? And he said, well, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And I said, aha! your neighbor as yourself. Those are the two great commandments. And how can it be that we have sat in the same pew for many, many years, in the same church, and heard the same sermons and the same teachers, and yet fundamentally we can't see eye to eye on the relevance of this issue? And it is a profound question, you see. And so what I am asking people to do, and I would ask you to do tonight with me, is three things. One, I would say we need to revision ourselves and what we believe is really critical uh, for this nation and the world, and it's called a vision. Secondly, I think you have to have a strategy to do that on this issue, because you see, I say a strategy or a vision without a strategy is an hallucination. And we need not just a strategy, but I believe we have to have tactics. Now this week, I picked up the newspapers. If you would like to know the backdrop, For some of this, this is the Washington Post on Sunday, Outlook section, Sunday, February 21st. How would Jesus vote? I'm an evangelical and a liberal, really. Written by Amy Sullivan, who used to write for the Washington Monthly and is now a nation editor at Time Magazine. And the others by David Kuo, a former member of the White House staff, uh, faith-based initiatives. It's not your father's religious right. This story, Evangelical Evolution, it's in the cover story on Barack Obama in U.S. News. Does Race Still Matter? Evangelical Evolution, a new generation, might not be so reliably Republican this year. In which the writer writes For many, Huckabee EC is the first national political iteration of a new crop of leaders challenging the old guard script, which you see has just focused on abortion. And same-sex marriage at the expense of a whole other issue, a whole other list of issues. And these new evangelicals, of which I am one, are saying that we have a broad responsibility to address issues like climate change. And then lastly, I I just mentioned, because we're in Nebraska, the New York Times Sunday opinion ethanol by the numbers, in which uh, the question of all of our public funding of ethanol is raised into question. And that is a relevance here because... This is a corn state. I'm so glad to be out here, by the way. I think it's my first time in Nebraska. So if I utter uh, some malapropisms out here, uh, you'll forgive me. But you see, I am saying we're going to have to revision our thinking. Now, with you, imagine, and you'll forgive me if I'm a bit the preacher, but imagine you believe in a God who is the creator of heaven and earth, and your fellow believers debate the details. Some say this took place 6,000 years ago in six 24-hour days. Others accept the old earth of mainstream science, about 4.5 billion years old, but deny that evolutionary process accounts for its diversity. And even others, you see, say that God used natural processes, evolution, to create this diversity of life as we know it. And one thing we're all sure of That God is the maker of all this, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So if you imagine, first of all, that, you can even close your eyes if you want. Imagine that your faith taught you that we as humans are under orders from the maker to tend the garden, to guard and protect it, Genesis 2.15, the first order of business that has never been rescinded. Imagine, moreover, that your sacred writings Reveal humankind under the influence of mysterious, fatal flaw born of our rebellion against God, a tendency to miss the mark, distort, abuse, neglect, and deny it all in the act of doing it. And then imagine that your faith uniquely qualifies you to accept the global impact of humanity, having been commanded to multiply and fill the earth. And a command was apparently responded to with unusual vigor. Would you agree? With over six billion, imagine that you were also prepared by your faith to face the truth that while our global impact was meant for good, it's gone horribly wrong in many, many ways. And now imagine that you even believe that your God was so committed to fixing the mess we made of things that he sent his only son to the world so that the footprints of God could once again be in the dewy grass of the garden so if you imagine all that wouldn't you believe that your faith is good news for our personal our social and perhaps even most importantly of all the most pressing of all problems the planet's very survival now supposing if you were imagining all this let's add another twist And say that you've been in a coma for the past 50 years and you know nothing of what has happened in the American political landscape or the response or lack thereof of evangelicals and other religious believers to environmental concerns. So wouldn't it seem odd to you that your particular brand of faith, your tribe, has a predisposition to doubt that all of this is occurring? You see that there is an environmental crisis largely by human activity run amok, exacerbated by greed, selfishness, and the overuse of God's given resources. Wouldn't you find it curious that people passionate for the gospel would lean toward denying a global problem that the gospel could be the answer to it? Now, you could say that we have a contrarian spirit. Now, you know, if the world says potato, we say potato, right? But even given the contrarian nature of the American public, we're not inclined by our faith to dismiss the global drug problem. We're not even inclined to dismiss, you see, that there is a human trafficking problem of over two million human beings that trafficked around the world. So then what accounts for the fact that a significant segment of the American public disputes what is occurring? Is it odd? Is it out of place? I would say yes, and it doesn't fit. And yet, that attitude has this origin. Let me tell you why we as a nation. It was de Tocqueville who first said, it's a nation with the soul of a church. And American attitudes are significantly created by their faith and their perspective. And... What we have is a community in America, I have to say sadly, you see that says, first of all, this isn't an issue I care about. They have what is, first of all, a disdain for environmentalists. I have to give you a copy of this. This was a picture drawn of my leadership. Uh, It's called Off Course. And it says that NAE, the National Association of Evangelicals, is leading its member churches into the political wilderness. And it came from a family ministry called Focus on the Family. And it says that uh, yours truly is leading, you see, evangelicals into the political wilderness. And so that is what I'm talking about. We have, I think, a real vision problem. Have you ever heard the story of the man who's pulled over by the cop? And he, he says, he says, you know, Sir, he says, uh, uh, my eyesight isn't so good. He says, my hand-eye coordination is even worse. But he says, he says, uh, thank God I can drive. Uh, what we have is a vision problem, and what I'm saying, if if I could, is that you see, it is so bad that we are in danger of jeopardizing the rest of the planet. How can it be, you see, that 4.5% of the world's population could contribute to over 25% of the world's greenhouse gases? How can it be that, you see, 4.5% of the world's population might use one-third of all of its energy? That is the reality. And unless we begin to address that, I think even by changing our vision, I don't think we're ever going to begin to do this. Uh, Let me say this, that... Uh, well, let me ask you this way. Uh, I ask people, Is man is he body plus soul? or that's your first option? or is it second, is it dust equal blo- uh, uh, man uh, soul equal dust plus breath? Bear with me here, I may have confused you. So the two options you have to think about this are: one: is man a body? plus a soul. In other words, uh, uh, did God make a body and put a soul in it like a letter into an envelope? Or did he form man of the dust by breathing his breath into him and make the dust live? In other words, soul equal dust plus breath. And if you chose the former, I would suggest that you think like most Americans do because they have this Separation from the earth in ways that are even rooted in our religious beliefs. Are you following me? So that is it any wonder, is it when any wonder at all, that when we hate and abuse the creation and life, is it any wonder that we do this? I believe when we're so separated, you see, from the earth, from the created beings even that God has made. And so I'm saying what each one of us here tonight has to do is to shift, you see, from an anthropocentric to a cosmocentric worldview. From a worldview that says I, man, is most important in the universe. uh, Most important. And everything was created to serve me to a vision that is cosmocentric, that says God so loved the cosmos. And so... What is required, you see, is a new way, I would suggest, by Americans, of understanding the universe itself, first of all, but also a reexamination of how we understand the humankind within the universe, if you're following me. And I would say that we are unique, you see, but we're not separate from the natural world, nor are we independent from it, but dependent on it. And so I would suggest to you that, you see, Science is and can be our ally in understanding the earth. But what has happened is that we have a disdain for environmentalists. We have a distrust of science. And then we have, if the media make of an issue a great deal, well, then we're suspicious of what even the media does. And then we say on top of that, well, God gave me dominion over this earth and I control it and I can do what I want with it. And moreover, I don't want the government meddling with it either. And you see, it's that mentality that has led us to this place today where I would suggest that you see our Christian faith. Uh, we've stood silently, yes, by why our Christianity has become willy-nilly the religion of the state and the economic status quo. And that's, my friends, why we have a planetary crisis on our hands because we are caught up in an addiction to fossil fuel and we have to overcome the denial that we have about this and you see I would suggest it address it you see not just by a frontal assault with the facts on climate change but by a holy act of subversion of inviting people to accept personal responsibility and so the first change that has to come in my mind is to revision who we are as people and see our connectedness to creation, to the earth. Now, the best historical example I have of this, the only way I can begin to explain it to people is as follows. That many people of biblical faith in the 18th century England had gotten used to slavery and they didn't see the messages. Of the Bible, or that it had a trajectory, you see, of teaching from bondage to freedom, and they too, uh, they too took a passage of scripture or so, and they sensed that it allowed them to accept slavery uh, as a societal given, and they assumed that this meant that they were to oppose efforts to end it. And it didn't help, you see, that ending the slavery. And the slave trade might impose on a comfortable lifestyle that in those days you see was table sugar from cane harvested overseas by slaves. And some religious people said boycott sugar to undermine the evil slave trade. And many of these people of biblical faith just rolled their eyes and put a few extra sugar cubes in their tea. And you see, it took over a hundred years for American evangelicals to understand as other Americans you see that what we were caught up in was a worldview about slavery and about the slave trade that only could be changed by a great reversal a great conversion and so what I'm asking you to do tonight and I'm asking for those who are listening by internet to consider if it's not true that these facts as portrayed on this film will require of us a different way to live. And what are those facts that by 2020, my friends, up to 250 million people in Africa will face water scarcity and crop yields that could be reduced by up to 50% by global climate change. That's a figure from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And that one to two billion people. Or more will face water scarcity this century. And so it's only, I think, by revisioning who we are as people that we'll begin to do this. And let me say additionally on this subject uh, that uh, we have to decide, because we are at that moment some would say, a defining moment in human history. And why is it the defining moment? It's a defining moment if you ask Bob Doppelt, who is a University of Oregon climatologist, he said it's because five times in human history man has been faced with choices that come about by the need to shift their energy sources. 230,000 years ago, man used to learn how to control fire, to heat his food. And to warm his body and to stave off death. And then you see the shift uh, at the start of the Industrial Revolution was to take that fire and burn coal for energy. And then later to use the burning of coal for the creation of electricity. And later you see even the creation of nuclear power. And at each one of these defining moments in human history, man had to decide. Man and woman had to decide. And he says we are at one of those moments in history in which climate change will determine who the winners and losers are. And if you're willing to change your thinking and adjust, you will survive. And if you don't, you won't. And I dare say we as Americans have to do this. I'm reminded of the story, by the way, uh, of the man who thought he was dead. And he went to his doctor, and his doctor said, of course you're not dead. And he said, oh, doc, I am. And the doc says, well, let me prove it to you. And he puts him in an MRI, and he shows him. And all of his bodily functions are working. And the man says, ah, doc, but I know I'm dead. And the doc says, well, let me give you a heart monitor. And he puts a heart monitor on him, and he shows his heart is beating, you know. And the man says, "Uh, I don't know, doc, I'm still not persuaded, so that... Doctor in exasperation pulls out a pen, sticks him in the finger and says, see. And the man turns ashen white and he says, my gosh, he said, dead men bleed after all. (sighs) There are some people, they can only change by a total reimagination, a conversion, if you will. To another way of thinking. And I say to people, if you're my age and I'm mid-50s, I say, if you've not changed your thinking about one thing, my friends, pinch yourself, you may be dead. And so I think, you see, ultimately, the challenge we face is from a theological point of view. Are we going to be a blessing to the rest of the world, a higher calling, a nation on a hill, John Winthrop's words, or are we going to be a blight on the rest of the world. And I have to tell you, uh, politics in Washington, as a lobbyist, let me tell you this, is not going to change. The leadership in Washington on this issue is nil under this administration, sad to say. It's not going to change unless I would suggest we not only have a vision to do this, to change our thinking and those around us, but I also believe we have to have a strategy to do it. Uh, Let me tell you the most famous story in all of Scripture. It's the story between Jesus and the then highest political figure of his day. His name was Pilate. This is the same Pilate, mind you, who asked Jesus what is truth. But in a very important conversation that I think tells us something about the strategy we have to employ on this issue, uh, Pilate says to Jesus, don't you know that I have the power to release you or to crucify you? And Jesus says, very wisely, He says, you have no authority except it be given you from above. And what was He saying? He was saying, you see, that all of our political leaders are to be held accountable to a higher authority. I mean, that is what... I believe, and I believe uh, like 100 million Americans, because that's how many, according to the surveys, there are of my tribe, so to speak, the evangelicals. 25% of the adult population of America. And yet I tell you, what we have accepted for, by way of a strategy, is transactional, not transformative politics. And you hear a lot about this during this campaign, but let me give you James McGregor Burns' definition. McGregor Burns says that... uh, Transactional politics. Well, he says, in this common way of leading, the goal of the interaction between leader and followers is an exchange of valued things. It's a kind of relationship in which the goods that are exchanged, whether they are votes, commercial products, money or labor, are the only valued items. No enduring purpose binds them together. And he also says it degenerates into Machiavellian relationships in which the goal is to manage and manipulate other persons rather than to lead them. And if there are people who are fed up with Washington as usual, especially with respect to these issues of creation care, which is to care for this environment, the Bible teaches it from beginning to end. It comes from Genesis 2.15, which says, yes, you are to exercise dominion over the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and all living things, but you're supposed to do it and to care for it. And so you don't have the right to just destroy it, to plunder it, deplete its resources. Because I own it, God says. And yet, you see, in transactional politics, what has happened is that politicians have been exchanging votes Uh, In such a fashion that the goal is to manage and manipulate other persons rather than to lead them. And so, uh, transforming leadership, transformative politics, on the other hand, McGregor Burns says, occurs when one or more persons engage with others in such a way that leaders and followers raise one another. To higher levels of motivation and morality. And various names are sometimes used of this kind of leadership. And sometimes it's derisory, elevating, mobilizing, inspiring, exalting, uplifting, preaching, exhorting, and even evangelizing is sometimes what this kind of transforma- transformative leadership is, is called. And it can be moralistic, of course, but ultimately Transforming leadership becomes moral in that it raises the level of human conduct and ethical aspiration of both leader and led. And it has a transforming effect on both. And I have to tell you, you see, that what we have had in significant measure on leadership with respect to this issue is self righteous Arrogant, unwilling to apologize, partisan intransigence, are without any authenticity. And I have to tell you that special interests have largely controlled politicians to the point where these issues of climate change have never even gotten a vote. The most was 46 votes in the 109th Congress. And there is a real question even whether the Climate Security Act, as it's called co-authored by Senators Warner and Lieberman, will even get a vote in this Congress because we won't hold our leaders accountable. And I say to you, students particularly, uh, that you're going to have to do this. You're going to have to join, I believe, transformative leadership politics in order to change the status quo on this issue of climate change. Uh, Listen to this. On October 2nd of 2007, the Arctic ice cap, according to the New York Times, was melting to an extent unparalleled in a century or more. Entire Arctic systems appeared to be heading to a new, more watery state, according to the newspaper. And yet the story disappeared. Why did it disappear? What happened to it? let me illustrate it this way. If you would like to know how many times the national media asked the presidential candidates in 2007 at all the forum this question, what is your position and what do you think about climate change, you might be, dis- be very surprised to discover how many times. In fact, my friends, the questions numbered 2,000 2000- 976, this was done by an environmental organization in Washington. 2,976 questions were asked in all of 2007. And the candidates were asked this question about this issue on this movie the same number of times they were asked about UFOs. Three. (laughs) This is true. They were asked about climate change the same number of times they were asked about UFOs. And what I'm saying to you as young people is that America needs your outrage. Uh, It's going to require that you light a fire under it to get it out of its apathy. And I would have to say to you by way you see of a strategy that you can't email it in. You can't sign a petition online or do a mouse click for carbon neutrality. That won't cut it. You see, you need politicians to pay attention, not patronize you. And this can only come about, you see, by and uploaded, can only be uploaded by the old-fashioned way. It's by speaking truth to power, face to face. Virtual politics is just that virtual so we have to have a new vision as the young woman in the movie says for this globe and we have to have i believe a strategy that says we will hold leaders accountable Uh, let me tell you the story of daniel in the old testament because I think it reveals something lastly about the tactics that we have to use. In Daniel's day, and I use the story for young people particularly, because you see, Daniel was a very young man. And he was in King Darius's court. For history buffs, King Darius was a real figure who lived in the 6th to 7th century BC. And he sought to bring together a Medo-Persian empire. A Medo-Persian Empire. And in his court was a young servant by the name of Daniel. And Daniel, you see, was very faithful, was sharp, by the way. He was probably good of political advice. And he became a friend of the king. And the others were jealous. The other satraps and others we find from chapter 6 of the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. They became jealous and they devised a trap. And the trap would go like this. They would go to the king to issue a proclamation that you would pray to no one but to him. And in the seventh century BC, this was the norm. So they went with what was in effect a plan, a coup, aimed, you see, at bringing Daniel down, but ultimately, in effect, uh, Darius himself. And they brought to King Darius Uh, the evidence of Daniel. And what was Daniel doing? We know from the scriptures that Daniel continued to pray in his window. And so Daniel prayed in his window, was faithful, and Darius had to make a choice. And I would suggest to you today, you see, that politicians are going to have to make choices not unlike that of King Darius. And what were Darius' choices? Darius' choice was to save his friend Daniel and sacrifice the empire. You see, because if he saved his friend, he would lose his leadership, in effect, denying his proclamation, revealing his humanity, not his divinity. So he had a choice save his friend Daniel and sacrifice the empire. Or save the Empire and sacrifice his friend and what I'm saying to you as someone who spent 28 years in Washington is that we have a circumstance today in which politicians are saving their friends and sacrificing the Empire do you follow what I'm saying and when politicians get 400,000, 300,000, or hundreds of thousands of dollars, you see, not to take action on climate change from the, yes, the oil, gas, and utility industries. You see, politicians have essentially been bought off. They, you see, our leaders are saying they will save their friends and sacrifice what is in effect the empire in this case not just our nation but the entire globe i went to a friend of mine he is senator sam brownback in his little cubby hole in the capitol and i said sam you're a friend of mine and i have to ask you you know what are you going to do about this and he said richard the line is given me that if we reduce our overall warming here in the United States by taking actions to limit CO2 emissions, it's not going to reduce overall global warming. I said, that's, that's, that's like a line from the White House. And he said, you're right. I said, Sam, I can't argue that. I won't deign to argue it. But will I, but will I say to you that as a politician, you're going to have to make a choice, and you will be held accountable, And so, this is what I say, and I think that's what you have to say as young people. Politics has got to be virtual on this issue. And here's what my friend Tom Friedman says of your generation. He says that you're the Q generation. He says that's the generation that's quiet, and you will do your service overseas in compassionate practices to save people. But he says you're too quiet. You will not challenge the political order as I did in my day and he in his day as young people, you see, 30 years ago. He says you're the quiet generation. And so what I'm challenging you tonight is this. My father's generation, if you believe Tom Brokaw and I do, was the greatest generation. My generation, I have to tell you, has been the greediest generation. And I would say to you, if you were not the greenest generation, then we will not save this planet because we are at tipping points if you listen to James Hansen and other scientists. If we don't act soon, they say within 10 years. In fact, they put us on a timeline and say if we don't do this, we will reach tipping points that we will never be able to reverse. And just remember, my friends, The CO2 we put into the biosphere, 25% of it stays 500 to 1,000 years. And so we're in danger of reaching those tipping points. And so I believe that you have to have a vision for change that includes a new relationship to this earth. I believe that you have to have a strategy as well. And I don't believe that simply quietly doing your charitable works, caring for the poor and loving the hurting and doing all of those things are going to be effective. You have to be willing to exhibit not just your visionary idealism, but your outrage at what's occurring. In fact, if you don't know, here tonight you see that the combination of of the Social Security deficit, the national deficit, and our ecological deficit, if you don't understand that all three of them are going to change your lives forever, then I don't think you're paying any attention. And most people in your generation are not. Let me close by saying that you see that issue of slavery that Americans came 100 years too late to uh, gives us an example of what we need to do today. Because, you see, in that day, 201 years ago, on February 27th, William Wilberforce succeeded in getting the British Parliament to eliminate the slave trade. That is what he, he slogged on 33 more years to eliminate slavery entirely. But you see, originally, people dismissed it here in America and said, well, well, maybe they thought the, the king was just a tax and spender or something. <laughs> Get the joke. Uh, but for whatever reasons, they didn't see it. And I'm telling you, we have to be able to see it. And I went to Shishmaref on the edge of the Alaskan coastline 50 miles from Russia this past summer and saw it myself and how the Inupics on Shishmaf are in danger of losing their entire island and their way of life for 400 years due to rising seas. And they need people today like William Wilberforce, who in his day was in his 20s and was told he was too young. And he said, I'll do it anyway. And I've been on a lot of campuses over the last year and a half. uh, And I've seen a lot of young Daniels. One of those I remember most is in bronze. He is posed as if he's striding toward a limestone archway reenacting his fateful step onto a then very segregated campus, defying a violent, angry mob. And if you haven't guessed his name already, his name was James Meredith. The location was Old Miss, the University of Mississippi, and he was the first African American to be admitted in 1962. And the Bronze, you see, is posed as if striding on the campus. Guarded by the National Guard, you see. Defying a violent, angry mob. And above the archway, etched into stone, is the following word. It's called courage. And I'm telling you, there are going to be people who tell you uh, you're doing the wrong thing. But if you do it with the tactics, I would suggest, like Daniel, who you see was characterized by grace, by characterized by integrity, uh, was, yes, someone who got involved in the system to change it. You see, in the end, we know Daniel, well, he survived the lion's den and his king said, may your God whom you serve live forever. And Daniel said, oh, king, you live forever? I believe that we all need moral imagination to see the future in ways we wouldn't see it otherwise. And we're going to need to collaborate with scientists. And that's why you had my friend Amory Lovins here just a few weeks ago, and I'm so grateful for him and others like E.O. Wilson, who's written a new book called The Creation. Because what they're saying is that your generation can do this, you see your generation can partner in new ways, reaching across lines, bridging outward with people you would never collaborate with to address this issue in ways uh, that no one else can because of your youth and your idealism and your outrage. And that is what is required. I'll tell one last story. Uh, It's the story of two young people who were upset with an old man who dispensed advice in the town square. And they were upset with him, so they devised the following plan. They would go to him and say, uh, with a bird in their hands, a bird in their hands, they would go to the old man and ask him, is the bird alive or dead? And if the old man said the bird was alive, they would reach in with their thumb and break the bird's neck killing him and proving the old man wrong. And if the old man said the bird was dead, they would reveal their hands to have the bird very much alive. Do you get the picture? They thought they had him. And so they went to him confident of their plan and asked him, old man, is the bird alive or dead? And he wisely responded. He said, the answer is in your hands. And so... The answer is in your hands. And so young people, I would say the answer really is in your hands. Uh, you're going to have to be prophets. You're going to have to be priests who will help other people to understand this in a, in a biblical sense, identifying with and caring for them and leading them in the right way. And lastly, you have to be, in a sense, rulers and leaders who will lead the rest of society. Uh, that image, I think, is consistent with having a vision, a strategy, and tactics. And so I would close with a prayer, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, I've done this uh, at the Ivy League schools uh, to no avail, and so I would do so even with you here tonight. It goes like this. It's actually, ironically, the charge that is the autobiography of our current president's uh, life. It's called The Charge to Keep, and he puts it this way, to serve the present age, I, I pray that this would be your prayer. To serve the present age my calling to fulfill, O oh, may it all my powers engage to do my master's will. Arm, arm me with jealous care as in thy sight to live, and oh, thy servant lead, prepare a strict account to give. Uh, my friends, we will all have an account to give, and I pray it would be one in which we are told, thy good and faithful servant. I really truly believe that this is your calling. It's your day. You have to be the greenest of generations. And I'll take questions too. Thank you very much.
5: Well, on behalf of all of us, thank you for both your message and thank God for the passion with which uh, you feel it in
1: your heart. Thank you. Wow.
5: The first question is traditionally asked from the E.N. Thompson International Scholars Learning Community, and I understand there are some students out there hoping that I'll ask their question because of the three, whoever, whichever one I choose, that group gets a bonus. Okay. <laughs> Do you think there is going to be a division in the political right? And if so, do you think the people in opposition to the current trend of the GOP will begin to vote more liberally or form a new conservative, progressive
1: movement? In other words, will there be a division in the Republican Party? I think there's already a great division in the Republican Party. I don't believe that people are going to leave it and form a new party. If that's the question but see this is what happens if parties don't change they become ossified and they become I believe just set in concrete so that people no longer will identify with them and so I really think that this Republican Party has to change or I suggest uh, probably something else will come in its place but of all people You see, it's my contention of all people, conservative Republicans should be the conservationists in our society because the greatest of all was Teddy Roosevelt, who established the National Park System. Even Richard Nixon created the Environmental Protection Association, and even the first Bush helped pass the Clean Air and Water Acts. And so I believe that Republicans will recover their heritage of being conservationists, because if they don't, I'm convinced uh, they will not survive. Because you see, I think the rest of society is moving and is way ahead of them. That's why you have 500 city, 500 city mayors and city councils that have adopted the uh, climate change issue and 34 states have chosen to do so, but unfortunately, uh, the leadership of the Republican Party heretofore has not. But for the first time, you have a standard-bearer in John McCain who is Green. And for that matter, Mike Huckabee has likewise uh, expressed himself as a supporter of not just creation care, but also of a cap-and-trade program. Okay, thank you.
5: Let me ask a, a question Steve Griffith in the pre-lecture said that we really need to ask, and that is you've you've said that the world will change very much. It will change everything if we address this issue as we need to. Uh Could you elaborate on what that change would look like? Describe it?
1: I say that climate change includes, you see, not just habitat destruction, uh, but the spread of infectious diseases. Uh, and pollution. But you see, it will, I believe, change the world into a more dangerous place because 11 generals have recently come out to say that climate change is a national security issue. And collectively, they say so as two-star, three-star, four-star generals is because they believe that environmental refugees and violent conflicts make global warming a threat to our national security. That's what they believe. And how will it change this world? I, I believe it could potentially change, you see, because of what I described earlier, you as one to two billion people who will face water scarcity. I believe that we could have water wars in sub Saharan Africa. I think that's what we face if we don't take action on climate change here. And I think it will make this world a very dangerous place. Does that answer that question? Uh, And yet I don't believe that it's too late. I never believe it's too late.
5: How do you reconcile pro-life views with the desire to reduce global population, or do you?
1: Oh, I've been accused, you see, because I happen to believe that we have to address global climate change, that that therefore means that I've become an environmentalist. And they say, oh, since you're now an environmentalist, Richard, that means you have to believe in population control. And I said, well, I don't believe in population control if you mean by that that you have to use abortion as a means of population control. By no means. But I have said at the World Bank and elsewhere that Look, we are moving from $6 to double that figure. And as an evangelical Christian, I'm not myself opposed to birth control. I'm opposed to abortion as a means of birth control, but I'm not otherwise opposed to birth control. And I guess that's an effrontery to some on the right, but I don't think it should be. And I happen to believe that we have to discuss this issue. And if we can't discuss the issue of population... Uh, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think we can call ourselves uh, humans in, in a real humane sense. I really believe we have to address all of these issues and do so from a biblical point of view. But to make myself clear, <laughs> you can discuss and ought to be discussing issues of population without inferring. That population control means abortion. But you see, to most people inside the Beltway, uh, population control does not mean abortion. But to those on the religious right who for whom it does, if you say you support population control, they infer that you mean you support uh, the taking of innocent human life. And I do not. Does that make myself? I hope that makes myself clear.
5: Uh, the next question is you say we need more Daniels? do we need more
1: any Daniel's? Yes Daniels. I imply <laughs> as much. Um, um, by the way let me let me say when you want to know what this world means um, if we don't address climate change, uh, it means you see uh, that we're going to have increasing Breast cancer rates. You heard Matthew Sleeth, the emergency room doctor, in the movie talk about moving from 1 in 19 to 1 in 10. If we don't begin to address, for example, uh, climate change, we can't expect to not face the spread of human infectious diseases that will uh, aggravate global warming. And these increased risks come from, mind you, malaria, dung fever, yellow fever, encephalitis, etc. And uh, and so I think women, most of all, I think because they are uh, so close to, I think, our children, my wife is, for example, even more so, I would say, than myself, they understand these issues. And I don't think we can do this without Danielle's, if you want to put it that way. Uh, By the way, Um, uh, one of the leaders on the world stage who believes this and with whom I've had opportunity to converse is Angela Merkel and she happens to be the daughter of an Eastern European pastor a Lutheran pastor and another man on the stage who likewise I think has identified with this issue in an unusual way and really cares about it is the son of a Scottish pastor In his name, well, he's the PM of Great Britain, Gordon Brown. And so you have assembling on the world stage, I believe, men and women leaders who are willing to do this. But they're waiting on America uh, to seize its role in this. And the one thing they can't understand, frankly, is how we can, so apparently, blindedly, failed to see the impacts on the rest of the world. And I explained to them uh, that it's in significant measure because I think our own people have failed, uh, in, a, in a vision sense, to see themselves in the world community as others see us. And so I lament the loss of American prestige in the world in recent years and can only believe that we have to address that and will address it. But it it is an enigma to the rest of the world, (laughs) the way we respond.
5: That leads directly to the next question. Uh, Which of the three remaining presidential candidates gives us the best chance at change?
1: You know, um, I'm not sure quite how to answer that. Uh, Let me put it this way. I posed it to the, um, the young scholars I met with earlier as follows. Barack Obama received this week the Teamsters endorsement. And the Teamsters, you may or may not know, involved as they are in transportation and let's face it, global climate change is one-third transportation. It's one-third industry, and the rest comes from our homes, the, the CO2 that is from our homes and, and businesses and all the rest. And so one-third of it is transportation. And so the question is, back to the question of transformative leadership or transactional leadership, You know, will Obama, having received the endorsement which he believes he needs in order to win this nomination, revert back to type if he is elected? We don't know. And uh, as far as John McCain, John McCain has been a leader on this issue. And I'm not convinced, though, that uh, he will not succumb, I think, to some of the pressures that normally come from the Republican interest groups. Because let's face it, uh, why, why does Senator James Inhofe feel uh, inclined, to believe that this is the greatest hoax ever perpetrated upon the American public, except and unless it has something to do with the fact that his annual gifts uh, from the varying interest groups in Washington on this issue uh, entails more than $400,000. So I happen to think that you see politicians who may mean well can become beholding to special interest group politics. And I, I don't hold out, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm not so naive as to think that not even John McCain would succumb. Now, the last name is Hillary Clinton. And for those of you who are uh, strong supporters of the Clintons, and I know both, uh, let me remind you that the Clintons didn't act as they should have done either when they were in the White House on this issue. And so, while all three, in fact four, if you count Mike huckabee I don't think he's he's in this uh, except to uh, have his day. Uh, Those days are numbered. But, uh, you know, um, I don't think any one of the three left in the race can fundamentally do this unless we change and we hold them accountable. So that's my answer.
5: The final question for the evening, is there an organization of environmental activists that is involved in churches, not necessarily evangelical churches, but any kind?
1: Yes. Um, I think one of the most significant entities that exists, not just uh, in uh, the, the religious community, but in the broad interfaith community, is the... A religious Partnership for the Environment. And it is a collection of both Jewish, mainline Protestant, and evangelicals. Evangelicals, part of NRPE, the National Religious Partnership for the Environment, consists of the Evangelical Environmental Network. And you saw in the movie Jim Ball speaking of how this issue will affect people overseas. Uh, It'll hurt them, he says, very candidly, and he's right. And so if there is involvement you see by religious people it has been yes through the help of groups such as NRPE the National Religious Partnership for the Environment and the Jewish group is called COJEL. Uh and uh, even the mainline Protestant group has been aided and abetted by groups uh, such as the interfaith power and light which is in most states these days urging mainline Protestants uh, through their churches to become green uh, and so I support all of those organizations and believe in them, but I wouldn't turn it over to them. And I would say to you individually that you've been concerned enough, and I applaud you to come out tonight to hear this, that you can't turn it over to anybody. You see, you will ultimately be responsible. And in closing, let me close the way I've closed with other groups, uh, to say... And it may strike you as too much the preacher, but let me do so anyway. When you die, God is not going to ask you how old this earth is or how he made it. And as you know, there is a huge debate that's been going on a hundred years over whether it's the six days or the day ages or otherwise. But he isn't concerned about that. I believe what he's going to ask rather is what you did with what did you do with what I created? What did you do? with what i created and that entails a response a personal responsibility to change the way we live and by way of a personal testimony in 2002 i went to the oxford conference on climate change and heard the evidence for science and decided you see that i had to change and so i came back and uh, well, I'm not saying you have to do this. I sold my SUV and I changed it for a Prius. I changed my house and updated appliances in order to cut my heating and energy costs. I've changed every aspect of my life as best I know it. And even am in the process, I would suggest you, you might want to do likewise. Uh, because even after I've done all that, the best analysts of climate change say, you still are leaving a carbon footprint that you can't offset unless you contribute. And they say it's 400 per person, per family, per year. And that's a heavy toll, which I can't say I've met entirely, but that contribution to the carbon fund is intended to offset, you see, after having made all those changes, my carbon footprint. And so... Uh, the last thought is, uh, look, we are all both perpetrators and victims, and that's what makes this so hard. But I lastly would say uh, I am as optimistic that we will do this as I am in the hope and the promises of God.
5: God continue to bless you in your vocation, thank you. and thank you.
1: Thank you, Father. Thank you.
2: Vielen okay. Dank.